0: Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Pats podcast about people who have lived unusual lives marked by dramatic change or a sense of living different lives simultaneously. This episode's guest is Dr. Rose Hayden-Smith. Rose worked in marketing in Silicon Valley in the early 1980s when the internet as we know it was in its earliest infancy. After leaving tech she worked as a student affairs officer in UC Santa Barbara and taking advantage of the discounted tuition fees for university staff Rose went back to school whilst working and raising a daughter and eventually completed her PhD in history, specialising in the victory gardens of the World War era. Her expertise in the field of food systems and gardening has brought her all the way to the White House as an invited guest. Join me to hear all about Rose's amazing story. Also, if you are listening to this, you might be interested to hear that for the first time on this podcast, you can watch my chat with Rose on YouTube and you can watch me trying to do my best auto cue from my laptop right now. Just go to YouTube and search Pat's Podcasts Donal Gallery and you'll find it right away. As I said before, one of the things I love about podcasts is the freedom that they allow. And I'm going to see how the experiment of recording interviews on video goes and think about whether or not I want to make it a regular feature. So watch this space or not. If you have an unusual life story or know someone who does, please get in touch with me by email at patspodcastpeople at gmail.com. So far, listeners have been great about suggesting guests, and I really appreciate it. Also, huge thanks to my friend Ryan Donaldson for becoming a patron recently. Also massively appreciated. Okay, over to Rose. Enjoy. Rose, how's it going?
1: It's going very well. How are you this evening,
0: I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast um, oh, and also for joining me in this format on video, which is the first time I've ever done this. And this is uh, episode 11. I think we're on here. Um, so it's a, a nice experiment to get started on this with, with your encouragement. You were kind of the one who, who said, yeah, come on, let's just, uh, stop being a sissy and let's just do it on video. Um, And I wanted to give the listeners a little bit of background of how we met online uh, because there was somebody tweeted, um, raise your hand if you didn't start in your field until your thirties. And this was just after I'd started this podcast and I saw that I was like, oh shit, there's going to be loads of stories that are really relevant to my podcast in this thread. And uh, I started reading through them. And I was kind of thinking, "Ah, I think some of these are bots like there was a I wasn't too sure about like the characters I was uh, seeing. But you came up and um, when I clicked on on your account and then started like seeing your website and stuff online, you're very legit, um, a very um, fitting person to have on the podcast. Um, And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, did you say in your in your tweet, you said you didn't you changed career in your 40s, did you say?
1: Yeah. I added on a career um, in my 40s and 50s. Um, I went back and got um, a couple of degrees in a different field and became a practitioner in that field and actually didn't finish my doctorate until about three months before I turned 50.
0: Right. Okay. Um, Yeah. And I think that's really inspiring for for anyone you know um a big point of this podcast is to go to anyone any listener or now viewer to say that you needn't ever feel in a rut and there are if you don't you know if you feel like a change you can do it and you are very much living proof of that um so we're gonna we're gonna hear all about your story and i gather in in the kind of broadest terms you in the earlier part of your working life you worked in uh, Silicon Valley in, in um, marketing and, and writing for a number of different companies. Um, and then in the later part of your career, the more recent part of your career, you've been an academic focusing particularly in agriculture and uh, gardening and particularly uh, Victory Gardens as they were known, um, which is like your specialist field from World War One and World War II up to the present day and how those things could be implemented today. Is that a fair kind of summary?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a fair summary. I had, um, kind of um, uh, a convergence of careers where i was um, a garden-based educator so i was actually teaching people and working with volunteer groups and communities to help create um, school home and community gardening efforts so i was like an, an community educator and then i got really um just passionate about the history of sort of gardening in communities and schools, and so that's when I decided, you know, I'm going to go back to school and learn more about this, and that's when I started um, my sort of add-on career as an historian.
0: Right, and that brings us nicely back to your childhood, because I gather you were saying your your a big part of your childhood was. That you traveled around a lot with your parents, and they they brought you to a bunch of different like Civil War sites. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so it was really interesting. Um, my, you know, we had a fair number of kids, and so we would take these um, road trips every summer, like just everyone piling into the car and we would go to national parks, we would go to historic sites, we would go to museums. And um, my, my father in particular was really big on that, right? Like if you're, if you're gonna go to Washington DC, you're gonna go to every museum. And um, I was really intrigued when I was a little kid with um, the American Civil War and so um my parents and my grandparents um my grandparents and you know my my family's from the south originally so they they took me around to all these um battlefield sites which was kind of like a weird thing to do when you're a kid but really super super interesting and then um you know any number of books i wanted to read my parents would help me access either through the library or just giving me books it was really fabulous
0: i saw you uh i watched your chat with your friend Suze. um i gather she's like a fellow ventura resident um and you described yourself as like a weird kid she kind of prompted you but you said that you you felt like you were a, weird, a bit of a nerdy weird kid
1: Oh, it's a completely weird kid. And um, no, I mean, I was a completely weird kid. I was, uh, you know, you could find me um, like parked in the hallway of our house. We had this bookcase with a set of encyclopedias and I'd be like parked in the middle of the hallway obstructing traffic in the house, you know just <laughs> looking at things and I'd be you know um, asking older people, just sitting down with older people just saying tell me about these things and um, you know just collecting stuff like huge collector and um, I think that's that's so interesting that you went and um, looked at that interview with Suze, who's actually one of my best friends. We share a birthday and we've been friends for many many years and she's remarkable.
0: Yeah, well I got a really nice sense of uh like the community that you live in and that's actually something I wanted to touch on uh early in the interview because part of what's so interesting to me about your story you live in California in, in Ventura in California and as anyone who listens to this podcast I I'm, I'm from Dublin and I live in London and um even like even right now visually you can kind of see like it's dark outside here because it's eight o'clock or thereabouts and it's noon over there in california but that's like a nice visual kind of metaphor for the way i would see those two worlds that california is just such a, a sunny kind of i don't know kind of upbeat and kind of a floating energy about about it you know and it feels a bit like a different planet um to to what i would know not that this is like mordor or anything like that but you know it just um you know what i mean that, that i feel like your experience is just extra inter- interesting to me because california kind of feels like another planet and i got a little bit of an insight into that and i remember you said when we talked before uh that you moved to ventura in part because uh, your husband said that it had great surf in in ventura is that right
1: yeah, he was, he was looking for jobs and a job popped up in Oxnard and he's like, oh, there's great surf there. So he went and interviewed for the job and got the job and we've been here ever since. But um, I, I had been in this area a lot when I was a kid because um, our family had a, a little tiny place on the beach about 20 minutes north of where we live right now. And um, so moving here actually in some ways felt like coming home. And um, you know, California is just such an interesting, wonderful place. And um, my family actually came to California when I was a little kid. And one of the reasons um, that my father um, chose to to move to California, was not only for work, but because um, California had and still has this incredible public system of higher education, mm-hmm. and um, that was like huge for my dad. Was that that any place that um, is investing in public education like this is is going to be a really good place. Um, to live in terms of you know um, economic engine and California really is larger than life. I I think that if if you've never been here, you don't realize how large it is, and how diverse it is in terms of ecosystems and in terms of um, population and cultures, and it it's just. Um, really a, a wonderful exciting place to be despite um all the challenges right because it's a huge state right. i mean there, there are 40 million people here um probably about i'm guessing one in every eight americans lives in this state
0: mm. it's one of the biggest economies in the world just by itself isn't
1: it oh yeah it's like i i'm i'm not sure it goes up and down but i'm guessing it's probably in the top five
0: right yeah um yeah
1: it's amazing
0: and so i'm and that's another thing not just that uh, you know talking to you and the stories of california feels like kind of talking to someone on another planet but i think also it's a very from what i can tell of it your life story is a very kind of american story uh in the best way possible you know like uh you've had a lot of great opportunities in your life and you've worked really hard and and as we're going to find out as we as we go on you know you've had what seems to me like a really kind of rich life um you know and a really a really bunch of really positive experiences um so in terms of that the the educational opportunities that your your dad was you know that was part of the reason that you guys moved what tell us about that What, what did you first study in university and and tell us where you went
1: yeah, so um, I I went to a public high school in a um, a pretty small rural community because um, that was where we lived. My father worked at the air force base, but he wasn't he was out of the military by that time, so we had to live off base. So um, we lived in this little community and. Super small high school, right? I mean, there there were like um, 80 students in my graduating class, which is pretty small. But Mm. I went to um, the University of California at Santa Barbara um, Mm. because, you know, I our our family had always, you know, spent um, summers and a lot of weekends up in that area and it felt very comfortable to me but it was huge right so um i studied um, my my first couple of years i did mostly general education and communications but then i switched to english and um, most of that was actually kind of like british literature right and um, it was a wonderful course of study because, um, in studying the literature, you learned so much about the history. Hmm. Um, you know, and so I studied at, you know, English and, um, then graduated and, um, actually kind of started working, um, in an unrelated field, which was, um, technology.
0: Yeah. Um, and this is another aspect that makes it feel like such a kind of to me such a kind of iconic American story because you were working in Silicon Valley. Is it like, did, did you kind of go straight there? But you were working in, in the field of tech at the time, this is like decades ago when all these massive companies that we know of now, like, d- didn't you say that Apple in its very early days was like across the road from where you worked at one point?
1: Oh yeah. It was right across the the road in Cupertino, California, and it was kind of interesting because um, I the the summer that I graduated, my college roommate um, got me a job on the campus in um, the uh, electrical engineering and computer science department, and I worked there for a year. And during that year. Um, I learned a little tiny bit about the Unix operating system. And so then um, my boyfriend, who's now my husband, um, decided he was going to go to law school in the Bay Area, up in the Silicon Valley at Santa Clara University. And so um, we moved up there. And so I right away got a job, um, you know, doing really entry level type stuff at at a startup company called the Wollongong Group.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which was based on an Australian university. They, like, they'd come... It's a very Australian-sounding word. <laughs> so that makes sense.
1: I've, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so... And so this was a long time ago. I mean, this was almost 40 years ago. And right. so um, th- there's a really good book um, uh, about the um, early industry, um, I I think it might be called Fire in the Valley or something like that, uh, that talks a lot about um, the early years in the Silicon Valley. But basically, all of these startup companies, a lot of them that were doing um, internet stuff were basically starting to do commercial applications on the back of the sort of um, defense ARPANET you know the and and that was so a lot of those companies like um time net and timeshare were doing that kind of work
0: so uh, am i understanding you rightly by saying that because i gather the internet kind of emerged out of kind of military use is that is that kind of what you're saying that yeah it, yeah it was, i
1: mean it was it, government and military use
0: right right yeah. so so you were literally right there as the internet was kind of being created, you were working in those kind well, of.
1: I mean, there was definitely work going on in in the period before I started, but it was a it was a period where there were a lot of startups, um, you know, creating um, applications that and commercial applications, software, things like that, that would run um, on the internet and so it was really interesting um hmm. place to be um, did,
0: did, if at that time uh if somebody told you what the world would be like now and how just totally dominant the, the internet is in our lives would that have been bizarre like
1: well it, it would have been really bizarre because um you know when i think about um you know my my Jobs in college, you know, you were using mag cards, right? Um, and and putting those things in. And so, uh, you know, when I was in college, I was typing papers, um, including my, you know, undergraduate sort of thesis on typewriters. I mean, not not computers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm I'm guessing that sort of maybe the the first microcomputer was maybe introduced probably right around the time I graduated from college. So yeah, I would not have been able to imagine um, this sort of changes. I mean, it's hard for me to think back, um, you know, 12 years ago when I still had a flip phone. Mm -hmm. You know?
0: Yeah, the the advance in phone technology has been really kind of startling, hasn't it? It, it?
1: It's been amazing. Yeah. It's been Our, absolutely amazing.
0: When I first arrived in London, which was like 10 years ago, I, I didn't have a smartphone yet. Cause like, not everybody had a smartphone. M- most kind of cool kids had smartphones, but I, I had still had like a shitty little phone. And uh, I remember I was trying to find my way around London, like w- literally with a map, like a booklet map. And uh, <laughs> I remember like plotting a journey to a nightclub on a weekend. And I rocked up on uh, my friend Sparks was there and I like opened this map. And he's like, put that away. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? Um, and to think that that was like ten years ago that I literally had a map booklet to find a place on on a Friday night or whatever. Um, yeah, it's advancing so fast. But but just to um, yeah. just to focus in on on exactly your story because obviously this podcast kind of concerns largely people's careers but you know their lives in general as well so just w- what exactly were you doing uh, in this work at, uh, around this time
1: so um i i really got picked up pretty quickly into marketing right because um i could write pretty well uh because you know i studied you know english degree doing a lot of writing And so I got, um, I was really fortunate because I was um, definitely uh, not very skilled or very prepared, but I had some really good mentors and they were women. Um, I had, and I had one terrific um, male mentor um, named Scott Holloman, who basically um, said, you can do this and then um, a couple of really really good female mentors including a woman named Kathleen Donegan um, who I'm still really good friends with right and uh, they they made sure that I knew what I was doing and um, just sort of surrounded me in ways that would help me be successful but I got to do a lot of interesting things I got to Um, early on, uh, like write uh, technical guides and documentation for software products for end users. And then I got flipped to doing more like marketing materials for um, that sales reps could use when they were going out to sell the product. And then um, I got moved into a product management position, which was really exciting because I got to work with a group of engineers, um, and sort of you know translate what they were doing, and then manage the marketing of um, of this little software product, and then um, my my last position in the technology industry, I was actually a public relations manager for a little tiny division of right. um, of a large tech company
0: yeah and so when you said you were working with those engineers was it kind of like they needed somebody who could actually communicate with people to kind of translate
1: yeah so it was it was like a lot of translational communications work and then it was also doing things like um having focus groups uh with potential consumers to sort of figure out um how it might look um, and basically sort of coordinating all the little pieces um, like the product name and, um, you know, and, and all the little marketing materials for it. And it was really interesting. I learned a lot um, in, you know, in terms of also um, learning how to listen to what scientists are saying. And that's something that I still use in my work now. Um, because I talk a lot to scientists and um, sometimes I blog about their research and their work. And so that sort of translational um, communication aspect, I think, is really important for anyone in any job.
0: Um, what would you say is that is the key thing there in terms of listening to scientists like, you know, if somebody wanted to learn how to do that, what is that what is the key element to that?
1: Well, you know, for me, what I end up doing when I'm talking to scientists and listening to them is asking um, a lot of clarification questions and mm. also maybe asking the same question in different ways mm. and um, for me I also make sure that I that I have it down right I, I go back over the steps or the process so that um, I understand what it what it is because um, I I I had this wonderful position at the university for a number of years, where I did um, a brand platform for the university called the UC Food Observer, and it was basically about creating and curating content about food, the food system, and agriculture for for people um, who might not be in the field, right, like mm-hmm. the general public.
0: Yeah and just um, while we're still on the your time in the tech world what were, what were the products when when you're describing these like i don't fully understand that what was when you're working with these engineers and stuff what products were you marketing
1: so they were like software applications right, right. um for for different industries um, and um, you know, some of them were customized. Um, it, not anything that you would go into um, a store and buy off the shelf, right? Right.
0: So you'd be getting it and, like in CD, CD-ROM, or whatever back in the day, and zapping uh, it into your computer. Yeah. Right? Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, I remember.
1: And so it was. It was really interesting because um, you know the the company. Um, I worked for uh, Timeshare uh, for a few years, and that company was actually bought by McDonald Douglas, um, and they created this big information systems group, and they basically went around and bought up all these tech companies to try to get um, more heavily into the tech sector. So that was kind of interesting to be working for um, a relatively kind of smallish company that ended up getting um, bought by like a huge you know conglomerate thing. Mm.
0: And uh, yeah, we we kind of touched upon this a little bit, but I gather you know it struck me that it's a very common situation. like in in the modern world, there's a huge number of people who either work for a company or their company is involved with other companies that they might go "Mm, I'm not entirely sure about everything that this company does and in the case of um, McDonnell Douglas part of what they do is is like weapon manufacturing right Um, and did that did that you know was that something that kind of bothered you at all or, or what did you think about that at the time
1: well, I, I, you know, one of the things that I observed at the time, and I was like, I was pretty young, right? Um, was that um, that when sometimes when companies, you know, purchase other companies, they're really seeking to change the culture, and um, and you know, we had a certain way of doing things at this company, and then another company buys you and um you know there were um reduction in forces it was very very stressful um i i actually got um laid off and um was sort of packing my desk and like the same day um another like little unit within the division said oh we'll take you (laughs) um and it was like really a sort of up and down thing and then um you know, I I I found it very stressful. And also too, I, but one of the things I've learned over the years is um, I ended up, you know, after sort of my career changes, working for a university, um, University of California, right? Mm. Where I went to school um, for decades. And, you know, these institutions and organizations, you're not gonna find yourself um, aligned with 100% of the time, right? And I mean, I remember um, as a young student at the university, you know, marching with other students to the administration building, holding up signs, encouraging the university to divest of its um, sort of economic and investment activities in South Africa, right? Mm. Um, mm. At that time, and and you see that um, I think some institutions and organizations you're not entirely aligned with. But you can come to um, an okay agreement about where they are. Yeah,
0: Um, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. I think a a lot of people are in that, you know, kind of position um, because everything's so interconnected uh, these days. Um, And just uh, before uh, kind of moving on to your transition out of tech, uh, an interesting character that you came across was uh, Doug Engelbart. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Um, and yeah, I, I until you told me about him, I hadn't heard of him, but w- I looked him up and Doug Engelbart was like a kind of a pioneer of computer technology and in lots of different ways. He seems like a bit of a kind of edison of of like computer technology. and he invented the mouse or was like major in involved in that. Is that right? It,
1: yeah, and it was so interesting because, um, if I had known then, what I know now, um, I mean, I would have had a million questions for him. But he he was um, very, very well known. And um, he worked at the same company I did, which was a pretty small company. Um, and it was at the end of his career. And he was sort of simultaneously there and at Stanford um, right. University. And, um, you know, I got to meet him a number of times and, you know, talk to him in passing and be in some meetings with him and just like a really kind guy. But then afterwards, you know, you know, you have that perspective afterwards of, you know, he's a really brilliant, smart guy. And then decades later, you're going, oh, my gosh, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, this guy was amazing. And his um, his family has uh, set up an institute um, that that sort of does. Still does, I think, think tankish type stuff around um, some of the ideas that he had.
0: Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting how the you know somebody can be a genius in certain ways, but then in other ways, obviously, just a very ordinary person. I remember reading about um, Isaac Newton that apparently two other scientists had a bet about some really difficult to solve kind of planetary uh, physics. And one of them thought that Isaac Newton might know about it. So he went to his office in Cambridge or wherever it was. And he's like, do you have any ideas about this? And Isaac Newton's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've solved that already. He's like, what? Yeah, yeah, it's somewhere around here. It's on a piece of paper somewhere. And he couldn't find it. It's like he's just such a disorganized person. Um, So maybe like in the terms of just Doug Engelbart being a genius in one way, but then just like a nice guy to chat with and not wearing it too heavily.
1: Yeah, and um, again, just amazing that, um, you know, and I've had that experience at the university where um, you meet some of the researchers and the scientists, and they're wonderful, and they're low-key people, and then you go look at their body of research, and you you figure out sort of where they are located in the field, and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, um, absolutely amazing and uh, that's one of the reasons I, I'm, I've learned to sort of ask questions um, because, you know, you don't really know people's stories until mm. you ask them questions.
0: Absolutely. And just to get a sense, because one thing, another thing that amazes me about your story is that you've done so much uh, whilst at the same time you have a daughter, right? Um, so had your daughter, has she been born when you were still in tech, or was that after you'd left that?
1: No, no, she was born um, after I left tech, and I was um, working at the university, right. and um, I I was uh, you know like a community educator, and I was um, working with volunteers and and providing leadership for uh, community-based programs um one of them is 4-h which is in the united states it's a youth development organization and it's kind of like um scouts except it really focuses more on sort of agriculture traditionally and stem and things like that and it's actually publicly funded so it's um it's it's like a a national program so i was working with that and then also working with um, the master gardener program which uh, which trains uh, community volunteers to go out and do volunteer work in, in gardens um, in the community. So she was born around that time. and um, those positions, um, you know, there was enough flexibility, Um, and I also you know I I would do a lot of work um, on the weekend in the evenings because community programs you know that's where the events Mm. start because everyone's a volunteer in the evening on the weekends so then my husband would you know um, take over so we we split it pretty well and um, it worked really well and and she's um, always been you know so wonderful and supportive so when I went back to school I went back to school when she started um, first grade because she had like an extended day so I could like race up to a class like a three-hour class and then race back and and do a little bit of work and then you know get her and um, it was really interesting because she used to go up with me when I was um, doing research for my PhD and she was she was little and she'd stand on this little um, stool at the library at the university and copy pages for me and um then when I was um finally doing my book years later she was the one who actually did the last citation for me nice. uh, like in the, the footnotes yeah it was it was very a nice sort of arc
0: yeah yeah um right so so the birth of your and it, your daughter's name just to.
1: Oh, her name is Natalie.
0: Natalie, nice. So, so Natalie yeah. was born years later. So if we just step back a little bit, how, how did your time in, uh, in tech come to an end?
1: So my time in tech came to a kind of weird end. Um, you know, we decided to move back to Southern California and the company i was working for you know by then it was owned by McDonnell douglas so my husband and i first moved down to orange county and McDonnell douglas had lots of facilities in orange county and they they said you know what we'll you're moving but we'll keep you on so i i worked in orange county and then i would fly up to the bay area and um i would be up uh, there like monday through friday um one or two weeks a month and um they they had so many people traveling in and out that the um the corporation actually rented apartments and so it was actually kind of a it was like a weird period but it was also kind of interesting because um you'd end up in an apartment they were female and male apartments, right? right. You'd end up um, in in a female apartment with uh, maybe someone from New York City or Texas. And so I actually made a lot of friends because you were there like Monday through Friday, right? Mm. Um, and then I, that just didn't seem sustainable. And then we decided to move to Ventura and then it really didn't seem sustainable. So um, I, I told them, I need to separate and they actually were wonderful they gave me a, a contract to sort of carry me over for a period of time and um i did a couple of little things and then i got this um great job at the university that i had attended as an undergraduate as a student affairs officer which nice. was kind of um the the beginning of my second career right
0: yeah um and the fact that you were working in the university enabled you to then study uh, with a a massive discount on fees, right?
1: Yeah. And um, they don't, they don't, that's not always available now. And that is one of the things I feel like incredibly privileged because they, um, they gave employees this um, steep discount. And so I kind of went, well, if, if I'm gonna get a discount, I'm going to school. So um, I, I went to um, an, an evening program and got um, like a master's in education. And then later I used that same program to get um, a master's in US history and then a PhD in US history. Right. And, um, you know, and, and I wish that, that these sorts of programs were, were more broadly available um you know and and you know but now there're so many online programs mm.
0: yeah you know? absolutely um and just to so people are clear what what exactly did the the student affairs job entail and how how long were you doing that before you then said you know what I'm going to take this opportunity and start studying here as well
1: well so um the student affairs officer job was really interesting Um, I didn't actually work on the university campus. They had a remote educational center, um, and it was wonderful because it basically was serving um, full-time working people who wanted to finish their college degree. And then they also had a a program that um, was actually broadcast And this is in the in the 80s right where they were broadcasting classes to point magoo for engineers so that they could get graduate degrees masters um and so it was really interesting because um i worked mostly evenings and weekends like late afternoon um because they were night classes Hmm. and i met the most interesting people and heard the most interesting stories um and um about you know people who were, were working really really hard to um achieve educational goals and career goals um and what they were and seeing what they were sacrificing you know evenings away from family and coming to school after a long day of work it was very inspiring and also really humbling right mm. um and a reminder of the sort of privilege i had And um, so during that period, um, I met this other group of people who worked for the University of California in something called the Agricultural Extension. And um, I met them and the guy that ran it said, you know, if, if you go back, and you get a master's in education, we're gonna have a position open in two years to be a youth and community educator. And I went, oh, that sounds really good. So that was when I went back and got my master's and then I completed that and they hired me to come over and be a, a youth and community educator.
0: Amazing, so the kind of the interest and the passion in terms of agriculture had kind of already bit before uh you know you you were already feeling that and then somebody said you know what this will be a way to make that kind of your your job
1: you know ventura is um it produces an incredible range of agricultural uh products year round it's got this incredible climate so just living here um in this little county that's adjacent to los angeles um, and you know, Los Angeles decades ago was one of America's largest agricultural producers, and then it became very urbanized but mm. but Ventura County has really held on to that, and so just being around here, um I was becoming much more interested in food and agriculture and how food is produced and um and consumer behavior around food like you know and how does it all work
0: yeah and I want to I want to delve into all that because that, that is your your field of expertise and I think people will find that really interesting um just to get kind of on the timeline to to there um did you say you had a kind of uh was was that person that was kind of an important mentor was that person who said you know you should do this I kind of I feel like you said there was a particular person who kind of turned you on to, to gardening particularly
1: Yeah, there was. There was. So um there when you when you get brought on in one of these positions, they're called advisor positions. Um they give you a mentor. So my mentor was this guy named Dan Desmond, who lived um and still lives in another part of the state and he's from a farming family and i mean i want to say they're like fourth or fifth generation california farmers but he also was an advisor at the university had my position in another part of the state and he told me he said so as you're starting out and you get to create you know sort of and shape a program that meets community needs um, think about garden-based education because gardening it's engaging And you'll be able to engage youth and families and community audiences on nutrition and agricultural literacy and uh, STEM, you know, science education and all of these things that he saw falling out of garden-based education. And I went, huh, and I took his advice. And so that was what I sort of delved into was um, I did you know I did a lot of other programming but um, sort of like my bread and butter community program was around gardening
0: right and so from the point you got the masters what what was the transition from there to it being a PhD and, and particularly focusing in on um, on the subject of victory gardens and and that war period
1: yeah well it was um it was basically um about an eight-year period Mm -hmm. and i was learning all about gardening and um and also uh, working with volunteers and and doing a lot of programs uh work with farm to school, right? Like um, doing farm to school programs and school cafeterias, um, working with school teachers to help them incorporate um, gardening into their curriculum. And so I'm doing all this stuff and I'm 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 reading some stuff about Victory Gardens and, you know, and the history of school gardens. And um, I, I even wrote a piece about, you know, that was um, an academic piece about the history of school gardens and things like that. And then um, one day I was doing some um, research on the internet and I, f- I stumbled on this um, article written by a librarian in Texas named Owell Davis. And it was like this little brief article about um, a world war one program called the united states school garden army and i read this article and i went oh my gosh and so um i i want to go back to school and i want to study this and so i actually um uh emailed the um, history department at uc santa barbara because i can't move right it had to be a place that was close and um this uh this professor who was the advisor her name is Anne marie plain um she said drive up and meet with me and so i actually drove up and met with her because i i did not have um a bachelor's in history i didn't i didn't really have any sort of preparation i took um one u.s history class as an undergraduate it was a, hist- a California history class. I, d- I had no preparation, and um, I went up and met with her, and we really hit it off. And she's like, "You can do this." So I applied, and they- and they accepted me, <laughs> right?
0: S- S- to do a PhD straight off the bat.
1: Yeah, to to do um, a combination master's PhD program.
0: Wow, because they. So I guess you'd you'd struck upon something in terms of this subject matter that not that many people were were working on.
1: there was no one working on it. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, right. There was there was no one working on it, and it was really interesting because, um, you know, I very quickly honed in because you know when you're um, when you're working full time and you're going to school and you have a family, you have to be efficient, right? Mm. And so I really, like from the outset, I had my idea that I was gonna do um, Victory Gardens and this United States School Garden Army because they were all sort of World War One programs. And um, uh, Anne Marie Plain and my other um, advisor, Randy Bergstrom, were really helpful to me because um, basically, uh, you had you had to take these like a uh, two quarter, uh, you know, long writing courses and research, right? And so each one of those um, research papers I produced sort of became chapters in my book. So they made it as efficient as as they could, and um, then along the way I learned about a third World War One kind of program thing called the woman's land army Mm. and so then i i said okay that's going to be part of it and that took me kind of down a little research thing about um the suffrage movement um and women's horticultural schools and uh, all of this stuff of course um has its Basis in, um, you know, the Victory Garden stuff. That's all from the UK, right? The United States Mm. modeled those things after the UK programs. So it was like really a wonderful generative period.
0: Yeah, Uh, so this would be a good moment because I think anyone listening or watching uh, will be like, you know, who hasn't heard about these things will be like, wait, what are you talking about? This sounds this sounds fascinating. so could you kind of give us just like a like a kind of brief description of um, well, Why was there a need? So we're back in World War One um, in America. Why was there a need for these Victory Gardens and what were they?
1: OK, so the, the Victory Gardens in the United States, they were modeled after programs in the UK and Canada because the United States obviously entered World War I years after our allies were involved. Um, and they were initially called Liberty Gardens, but very quickly renamed Victory Gardens. And these were um, gardens in wartime that were at schools, at homes, in communities, in public places, in workplaces. And um, there were a number of reasons for them. Um, One reason was um, this idea that America was going to produce more food to help our allies and also to feed our own mobilizing troops that were going over to France to fight. And also that it would be a unifying activity on the American home front because the American home front was pretty messy um, in World War One, there wasn't a um, hundred percent buy into the war effort, um, and there was also um, this idea, uh, a sort of tandem piece of food conservation, um, which could be very resonant today with how much food in America we waste.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely want to get on to the the present day uh, in a little bit. Um, and could you just tell us about the the women's land. Army, was that what it was called? Um.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the woman's land army was pretty interesting. So um, there was an agricultural shortage in the United States for a number of reasons. In California, there was an agricultural shortage, not only because of the draft. Even though farmers were exempt, um, many farmers went ahead and enlisted and, and went to fight. But also in California, we had um difficulties with um with Mexican labor so they had you know shoved all these Mexican laborers out of the country right and there was an agricultural labor shortage so um women in this country inspired by um the British organized a bunch of groups came together including the women's suffrage party the ywca things like that and they created this notion this idea of this woman's land army and in world war one in the United States there were about 20,000 women who were activated through this program to do labor and many of them were um, uh, white middle-class or upper-class and from elite colleges and universities. And for some of the, and there were also women who worked in shops or other sorts of jobs who were coming out to maybe make more money or have um, a novel sort of experience. And it was really, it was really interesting because they were definitely trying to, many of them use this to press for suffrage, right? And um, part of the recruiting strategy was actually to have women from the United Kingdom come over and talk about the nature of female citizenship in World War One.
0: Mm.
1: It's interesting,
0: really interesting. It actually makes me um, think of a kind of a slight parallel uh, in Irish history in World War One because. Uh, similarly the the nationalists the people who wanted ireland to be an independent nation um said to a lot of a lot of people signed up saying go and fight in world war one for the british army and they will reward us by giving us our independence you know help them out and they'll help you out and in, in a way it sounds like a kind of a slightly similar thing if if i'm picking you up correctly that they were saying if we if we take part in this and we make a big contribution to this then we've got a much bigger a much better hand at this table to go now give us suffrage as
1: as we should yeah have. and no you've you've got it exactly right and you know there was there was not consensus that that was the right strategy as I'm sure there was not consensus um among the um, Irish nationalist right? 100% um, yeah <laughs> it
0: didn't it didn't right. work out that way yeah um, right we, we won't get into that,
1: that <laughs> yeah uh, but you know it's really interesting because uh, you know World War One is not dissimilar to the period we're in right now and not only because of the pandemic um, which doesn't like then a hundred years ago you know d- doesn't have any Easy medical therapeutics, but also too, you know, great inequality, um, lots of political strife, like in America on the home front. Um, at at the outset of World War One, it was messy politically, and mm. it, just as it is now. And and there are a lot of similarities, I think.
0: Yeah, just you you mentioned about um, the Mexicans being shoved out of the country was that sounds so illogical when you're losing all these men to go off and fight in a war was that some kind of anti-immigrant thing going on
1: well and it wasn't like the whole country but there was a huge anti-immigrant thing um around the time of of world war one but i'm thinking you know particularly in california um that there was just tension around migrant labor in world war one as there has been at other periods um, but you know, the U.S. in a larger sense, prior to World War One, was having um, you know uh, de- conflict with with Mexico um, mm. around borders, right? Okay. And, um, and and I also think too, you know, um, one of the things about these um, these gardening efforts in World War One. Is um, there? They were. They they tried to be inclusive to a certain point, and they actually published the um, posters in a lot of different languages because there um, were a lot of immigrants um, in America at the outset of World War One, and um, part of the idea of this gardening was as a unifying activity for. Mm you know the diversity of people living in the country
0: yeah I, I, actually you touched upon the posters there and that'd be uh, just a nice thing to talk about because I know that's um part of your research and it's a really cool part of of that era uh and uh, you know I've watched videos that you I, I watched a video that like you made for kids and I thought this is this is brilliant this is like my speed and uh I uh you show a bunch of the posters and there there's some s- fascinating phrases used like what, what was it something along the lines of food are munitions you know there's like a huge comparison oh. between a uh, food is ammunition and all this kind of stuff like completely combining the the language of agriculture with the language of war which is and then like lots lots of lovely images like as as you say in those videos like there was brilliant artists at the time who who were making these posters
1: yeah, so that poster is probably my favorite World War I poster. And it, the title of it is Food is Ammunition, Don't Waste It. And the poster in the foreground, as, as you remember, it's got a basket of fruits and vegetables, and they're lush, and they're in the foreground. In the background, you see a battle going on Mm. and um, a reminder that world war one was kind of in some ways the last old-fashioned and the first modern war simultaneously with horse cavalry but also machine guns right and just absolute destruction but um, definitely these um, these gardening programs the rhetoric is heavily militarized and um, so it's the United States School Garden Army, right? Mm. And kids are invited to enlist. Um, you know, food is ammunition. Don't waste it. Um, for the Woman's Land um, Army, they were often referred to as Sisters of the Soil or farmerettes, um, you know, but very militarized rhetoric in general. And that's one of the things that um, the poster art is beautiful and amazing, but one of the things that's to me not helpful about just sort of saying, oh, we ought to have a new victory garden program. It, no, we, we would need to call it and reframe it in different ways because I don't think the military rhetoric is is helpful. Um, And in terms of the people that created the posters, yeah, they were they were fabulous nationally known artists who were recruited um, by the government to produce these posters.
0: Ah, it's interesting you say just just um, uh, a brief little kind of offshoot of what you just said, because I want to get to the modern day of, of food systems and so on. But just about the military thing, that is something that strikes me. Like, say, for example, I'm not a massive NFL fan, but I watch the Super Bowl each year. And it does strike you when you're not used to that culture and, and you and you live, you know, in London and you watch the Super Bowl. You're like, wow, this is military pomp is weaved into this so heavily. And, you know, I've, I've spent a little bit of time in America. I gather that, that is just a huge part of the culture, which you don't feel as much in my experience of, of, countries in Europe not that it's totally absent here but um yeah I, like I, I and i understand what you're saying that if if they were to do a modern version of this you wouldn't be too comfortable with that but i gather th- that is very typical is that a fair statement to say that kind of weaving military kind of rhetoric into things is very typical in in, in the states
1: well i i think um you know the the only thing i can you know, really speak to would be these sort of victory garden things. But it's really interesting because I think, um, you know, we often forget our history. And so, um, you know, at the outset of World War One, America did not have a very large standing army. Because if you remember from your history and the history of our countries, that one of the big beefs that um, the you know, folks over here had with the British were sort of standing armies in their presence. Mm. And so when the United States, um, you know, declared war on Germany in World War I, um, we had to really quickly mobilize. And and so these sort of, um, and then we demobilized and then we mobilized again for world war ii but um you i mean we certainly have um and i don't know that i have a really good perspective on it i mean my you know my dad was in the military and i lived Mm. on a military base um Mm. for a while but i do know that at least going forward if you were going to have a national gardening movement you shouldn't frame it in Mm. in this sort of past um military rhetoric and i i can understand why um they maybe did it in world war one and world war two but i don't think it would be relevant now but it's certainly it's certainly america certainly a gun culture mm. Mm. you know
0: yeah um we, we could talk about that that all night but uh <laughs> but uh, yeah let's uh delve into because i'm really curious about this that given that this is a a field of expertise your field of expertise um how these things um the victory gardens and so on and food systems apply in the present day um because put it this way in, in the kind of simplest terms what would you say um is the danger we're facing in modern times in terms of our food systems
1: well, I, I think one of the things that we learned, you know, at least in America uh, during this pandemic is um, in the initial sort of part of the pandemic, there were some shortages, right? Um, and I, I think one of the most, you know, shocking things, and uh, it's been really reported on very well, um, by some people in the American press, including um, a woman named Leah Douglas, is um, the, the infection rate, um, you know, COVID infection rate among agricultural workers, particularly in meat packing plants mm-hmm. um, in the United States. And again, it, it's if you had told me a year ago that people would have an awareness about um, some of the dangers of a consolidated food system that does not afford enough protections for its workers. I wouldn't have believed it, but it's actually made a lot of national news um, here about that. And so I think, um, you know, one of the big dangers, I think, you know, going forward um, also is just uh, acute hunger right i i mean um i think uh, the latest stats are one in six um american families are food insecure um and i i think food security and you know is a is a huge issue you don't want families and communities to be food insecure and i think that um in some ways, uh, not always, but in some ways, relocalizing food systems and encouraging um, gardening efforts—you um, know, at a different scale in communities—could help address uh, food insecurity. Um, you know, we we have a new administration. You know, Joe Biden's our president now and yep. um so, and, and <laughs> yeah right and um uh, you know this big um relief package um that was you know passed in the house sent to the senate modified has now passed the senate will go back to the house it has a, a lot of things in there that will help address um Not enough things, but but some important things that will help address food insecurity in this country. So, um, yeah.
0: Obviously, as you say, things are moving through the the houses in in America and and we're dealing in the real world where things are difficult to, you know, change is diff. You're, you know, moving an ocean liner, as they say. But hypothetically, if you had a magic wand, uh, you know, what What would be kind of the, the most effective changes that you think could be made if you could just make them instantly in terms of the field you study?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think there are a number of things. Um, one of the things that I would like to see is um, I would like to see more processing, food processing capacity spread out um to make the system more resilient and more equitable um I think that um, as a nation we need to look at how um, our we have subsidies as I, I know England does too um you know uh, we have subsidies and I think the subsidy programs need to be um, looked at um, A lot of the subsidy programs sort of uh, favor um, Midwest commodities, but I don't know that we do enough, um, you know, to help people access fruits and vegetables. Um, I think gardening efforts could be um, a big part of it. Um, You know, a big part of what we struggle with in this country, you know, that, is at a root of all of it is that we um, we we don't have a very high minimum wage. We yeah. have a really low minimum wage, and we also have um, you know some some areas of the country that have very very high living cost, and um, you could work full time. And, and not be able to make it. And so I, I think fundamentally, we've got a lot of things we have to do to sort of restructure. Um, we clearly need to um, be looking at how we're going to respond to climate change in terms of production, agriculture and mm-hmm. community resilience, right?
0: That, that reminds me, like one of the most alarming things that I've seen in terms of food systems being a complete layman um is the whole idea of topsoil in the world and how like i've read articles about how in 60 years time we could have destroyed almost all the topsoil or a huge amount of the topsoil in the world through things like pesticides and and kind of industrial farming and stuff like that and that we need the topsoil for for most food that's grown in the ground is, is that true and and you know in terms of the the kind of global scale what what do you think needs to be done about that or what what kind of things could people be looking at to try and contribute to that
1: yeah um so i i mean soil and healthy soil is you know it's uh, the, the fundamental building block right of of a food system and um I mean, there are so many concerns about soil. There are lots of people doing incredibly good work um, around soil health. I mean, there the United Nations, I think, what, maybe two years ago, had sort of like, um, you know, soil health was one of their sort of primary topics for a year. And, um, it, you know, what? what I think you should do is I think that you should talk to Jeff Mitchell, (laughs) who's one of my University of California colleagues who um, has been working in areas like no-till and um, cover cropping and things like that. and, And is like a, you know, knows all about production, agriculture, and the soil science. Okay. Um, but I, I think it's it's really um, a concern, and there are definitely agricultural and production practices that can do more to promote and help, and, and um, another person um, whose work I admire, um, who's hyper-local in my community, is a farmer named Chris Sayer, who's um, doing a lot of things like cover cropping, in his orchards and writing about, about what he's achieving through that, um, you know, better water retention, um, less soil erosion, healthier soil, um, fewer weeds, uh, fewer sort of um, invasive pests like bad bugs and things like that. So there yeah. are lots of things that can be gained.
0: Right. So you sound kind of optimistic. Yeah. Um... I know you say like on your website, in your, in your bio about yourself, you kind of end by saying that you're most importantly an optimist. So it sounds like you're optimistic. <laughs> is that is that correct? About well, I know we're, I, we're I facing mean, big challenges.
1: I mean, we're facing huge challenges. And um, I think more days than not, I'm optimistic because I think in this pandemic has been so terrible. Um, so terrible. But what I'm also um, seeing and hearing from people is that a lot of things that have been surrounding us that haven't been good have sort of emerged. And I think a lot more people are seeing the challenges clearly. And I would also say, too, that it's an opportunity to reset things um, in really important ways right Mm. um everything from how we work and how we consume um and a resetting um a lot of the people that i'm talking with um we're starting to have these conversations about what has been the silver lining of the pandemic and what are we going to carry forward and i'm i'm just hearing really interesting things from people about the pandemic um helping them understand what their values are and like a big oh my gosh Mm. right Mm. so i'm 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 pretty optimistic
0: great (laughs) yeah i completely (laughs) agree it's been one of the silver linings of this period i certainly think has been a it's been a good time for reflection and uh, and because there's so so many less distractions in terms of social distractions and so on it's given everyone a chance if they wanted to to kind of read and listen to things and
1: and and yeah. and here's what I would also, you know, remind people about is, um, in these periods where we've had these just horrible sort of global experiences, you know, the Black Death and all that period, World War One, um, other periods of of great upheaval, they have also been followed. By periods of enormous creativity and reinvention. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the insights that I've gained as as someone who, you know, studies sort of like the first half of the US century is um, I never understood the 20s, right? I never understood. I kind of went, wow, wildly creative art, literature, music, lots of, um, you know, uh, positive um, trouble, good trouble, (laughs) like John Lewis would say, lots of bad, lots of bad stuff, too, lots Mm. of bad stuff, but like, like a pent up burst, right, of creativity. Mm. And I think that's what we might be going into, right? Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully.
0: I'm to, to be even on just a really kind of local level i see that it just in terms of creativity like yesterday a friend of mine who, who had been a musician already in fairness but he seems like he's particularly fired up right now and he just released a song yesterday and he released this amazing video actually with lots of like vintage footage from america uh and it's amazing like i genuinely really love it and i'm not just being nice as his friend saying that and, like, my brother has started writing songs, which he'd never done before. Um, and even this, <laughs> you know, uh, I, for me making this podcast as an example, I think th- even even while we're still in kind of lockdown times and stuff, the, the creativity is already starting. So I think that is really exciting. Uh, but speaking of really exciting, um, I wanted to hear about your visit to the White House. Um, I gather you in the time in the term of Obama uh, you got to visit the um, the garden in the White House and uh, I was wondering a could you tell us why how did that come about and why why were you kind of particularly chosen and uh, you know I gather as part of a group or why were you chosen and also uh, can you tell us a bit about the garden and the initiative.
1: Yeah, so that um, was an amazing time. And I was part of a group um, that was chosen. It was a small group. Um, we were all funded fellows by the Kellogg um, Foundation. And it, yeah, like the Kellogg Serial people, the family, you know, maybe 100 years ago started a foundation. And um, they, they funded... Um, all these fellows to work in different aspects of the food systems and so the group that i was part of we had this um there were some us that were focusing on gardening things right i was really focused on the potential of the victory garden model right that if we could if we could have a national gardening initiative how we might be able to improve things so my friend roger dewan Uh, from Maine, he, as part of his project, he did this, um, this wonderful campaign that was basically whether John McCain or Barack Obama got elected, that whoever got elected, that they should put a garden a vegetable garden back in the white house because that hadn't there hadn't been a vegetable garden at the white house since world war ii when eleanor roosevelt had um a victory garden there and so um it was really interesting so um we got invited to go because michelle obama had put in um a a garden at the white house so our little group went and um we got to meet with sam cass um, who was the remarkable sort of, you know, chef and food systems expert that um, that came with the Obamas to, to D.C. And the garden was amazing. So um, they it is maintained by the National Park Service. And um, they have some really wonderful plant material that comes from... Um, Monticello, right? Thomas Jefferson's, you know, place. And, um, it was, it was absolutely, um, one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. And, um, uh, we were, we were given some little, you know, tomatoes. And so, um, I had, I had my three, And, um, I wrapped them up really carefully and I put them in my shoe so that when I, you know, I mean, not the shoe I was wearing, I (laughs) kept them in my hand. And then when I got back to my hotel, I wrapped them up and I put them in my shoe to pack them. And then when I got home, we, um, my husband, my daughter and I kind of like, ate them in this like little communion type thing in our kitchen. (laughs) I'll never forget the moment with, you know, with the sun coming through the kitchen window in the mid-century tile. Um, But I have to tell you another amazing garden that um, resonated with me even more deeply, if it's possible in seeing a garden on, you know, at our nation's capital where everyone could see it Was um, the uh, Tom Vilsack, who was the Secretary of Agriculture under Barack Obama and is now Joe Biden's Secretary of Agriculture? Mm. He's coming back for a second visit. He and his staff created um, what they call the People's Garden at the US Department of Agriculture Capitol on the National Mall. And that's an organic garden, and it's on the National Mall. It's open to anyone. Absolutely inspiring garden.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and just, uh, I'm just curious about the kind of detail. I, I have this idea in my mind when when speaking to people on this podcast. Is sometimes it's nice to kind of zoom in on certain moments. And I'm just curious with the with the White House visit. What what's the um, what happens when you're like led in there? And so was there any kind of weird rituals in terms of security and stuff about how you got in? Or was it just like visiting any kind of well, stately
1: home? Well, no. Oh, no, no. The The security was really tight, right? And I've been to um, White House uh, tours before, right? And this was, um, this was different. This was like a smaller group and meeting with, you know, someone... Um, like a pivotal part of the staff and the security on this was quite tight. I mean, we couldn't have, um, you know, you, you, we couldn't have like purses or anything like that. So I remember tucking my ID in, in my shoe. Right. Everything's Um, going in your shoe. (laughs) Everything's going in my shoe, right. My, my good little earth shoes. Um, And, uh, we, you know, it, it was very, 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 very tight. Um, and i can't even imagine now what what it would be like um you know if you could mm, even get uh, yeah. in but um you know
0: yeah um who knows but it really strike. you know i was saying at the very beginning of this chat that your life story strikes me as a very american story in the best way possible in terms of the opportunities and things you've had and the kind of the fact that through your your hard work and kind of seizing these opportunities, you've you've had a really interesting journey, uh, and it seems kind of fitting that you would then be standing at the White House. You know, it's a nice uh, it's a nice image uh, to reach, but of course, it's not it's not the end of the journey by any means. And I, I feel like um, talking to you and, and kind of doing the the bit of research I've done on on your field of study, it feels to me. It feels to me like something that we're just going to be talking more and more and more about in the in the coming years and decades. In in a way, it made me think about, um, like, I don't know if you saw a few years ago, uh, Bill Gates did a TED Talk about the potential for a pandemic. Uh, and of course, when this came along, everyone was like, oh, Jesus, he said this like three years ago. Why didn't we listen to him? Um, and in a way, I've, I feel a little bit like that about your field of study that and I hope it's not in a in a terrible cataclysm that we're like, oh God why didn't we listen to food system specialists but that slowly but surely people are going to realize this is such such an important issue that we need to um, find all these solutions to uh, w- would you would you agree or
1: well I, I mean I feel like what I'm seeing right now, is that um, in the there's a real focus as there needs to be on social justice mm. in the in the food system in in America, and mm. I am seeing so much creative work, um, and it and the field is populated by immensely talented young people. Who I think um, are are going to um, really have the pot- I think there's a real potential for transformation because I think people have seen these things and awareness right and um, and it's so interesting that you reference the 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 Bill Gates thing because um, I I read all the pandemic-y stuff and I have for years and years because you know part of World War One was a pandemic. And so, um, you know, John Barry's book, The Great Influenza um, is a fantastic read. And John Barry actually um, has, you know, is a, a incredible author, historian, but also has done a lot of, you know, um, consulting work for the, for the U.S. government on sort of pandemic stuff, right? Um, and, and I, I mean, I remember when, you know, hearing these first reports, and um, I read people like Lori Garrett, um, and who's a fantastic science journalist, right. And I, I think that we do need to pay attention, but I'm actually really optimistic about um, the, you know, the potential in America about making some transformation uh in the food system and it's kind of interesting because you know Joe Biden is not um the most um you know dynamic guy but he's really solid and I feel again that some of these things and some of these policies might end up being really really transformational but we it has to be geared in social justice because um, you know, people have been dispossessed of land and, mm. um, and, and that there needs to be sort of restoration of that kind of stuff. Mm.
0: The mm. so kind of structural aspect of it, of it all before you can address.
1: Structural. Yeah. I mean, I think if we don't address the structural aspects, um, it's hard to effect lasting change.
0: Mm and out of, so say just f- for me specifically right i i live in a house in london with two friends we have a little garden now we're renting so i don't i don't know if i could like dig it up but uh what would you say to me if i if i was like right i just want to start dipping my toes in um or my toe in uh in starting to grow some food what you know, what would you what would you advise?
1: Well, um, does your community in your neighborhood is there an allotment garden where you could go and get an allotment? And um, so I really encourage people, because you know, right, access to land is a privilege,
0: mm.
1: you know. Um, and you know, if, if, if you lived where I lived, you could grow things in pots on your patio, but you Mm -hmm. know, you may not, um, be, be able to do that. So the first thing I would do would be to see, um, is there any place in the community where I can grow food? But I think fundamentally we need to be much more radical about that, right? We, we need, I mean, I would love to see, um, more gardening in public places, you know, like in World War One, you know, you had gardens on the National Mall in the United States at Boston Common. So um, do you have a garden in your neighborhood?
0: Probably.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, because you live in a country that really loves gardening.
0: Yeah, um, it's definitely a big uh, part of it's it's more a part of English culture I'd say than Irish culture um and yeah living in London I've definitely seen some I haven't noticed w any, any in my area but uh, you know I could easily just have a blind spot to that but definitely yeah that's a, a really interesting point and even just put like like putting some pots down or, or you know it'd be good to just start experiencing it a little bit um just so you know some of the basics uh, if this becomes a bigger and bigger thing, as as I suspect it might, um, I just wanted to touch upon because we've talked about you having various different careers. Um, but another thing, like we and we've talked, uh, you know, all about the the food systems expertise and and uh, Victory Gardens and so on. But another thing, uh, if you look at your website, is you've got this company Shine Communications. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and how yeah, would you describe?
0: How would you describe that?
1: Um, it's I do um, sort of really customized and boutique uh, digital strategy, mostly for organizations and individuals who are in higher education.
0: Right. Um, you're you're a one woman band, Rosie, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> <laughs> I don't hey, it's re- you
1: have to evolve.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really cool. And, you know, I'm even the fact that we're uh, trying this on, this is the first time I've done a video interview, and that was on, as I said, on your kind of encouragement. So I feel that that sense from you that you like to um, keep moving forward, and you know, thinking, thinking of creative ways to do so. So it's um,
1: yeah, I I think um, you know, it's really really important to be flexible and to embrace opportunities and if you're like me where you've had um a lot of privilege around um accessing education to you know to to use that and to um evolve and try new things i mean i certainly and also too i mean i am just not um scared of falling flat on my face i just Mm. don't care i mean i learned something right Mm. every time i fail
0: Are you ever lazy? Because you seem just like you've got so much on the go. Do you ever just like not do anything with the day? It doesn't seem like it.
1: Well, you know, um, that's actually one of the things that I've been um, really trying to focus on in the pandemic is to to really be more comfortable with not doing anything and just, um, you know, sitting outside and sort of going, oh, this is great. Or taking a walk um, around um, the neighborhood. Um, I like to read. Um, And I've actually been been trying to pick a day a week where I unplug like a social media Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And that's been really, really helpful. But um, I i I need to do more of that, but that's been a good lesson, you know in the pandemic is um privileging more of that time and realizing that even in sort of the silence and the quiet times, that that's an actually really generative time in terms of ideas and thoughts.
0: Absolutely. I think we're missing that so much more than we realize in this day and age where you're constantly looking at a screen just the, the imagination of the mind wandering.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things too, about, you know, about an unplugged childhood, like I had, right? I mean, um, there was just endless opportunity, because there weren't screens. And um, my parents were not big on TV. I mean, until I was in high school, we had like, a little twelve inch black and white sony TV with you know you can get like three channels and um, having that sort of opportunity to be creative and you know read and and do a lot of thinking
0: hmm. Well, you've clearly done that um, and uh really grateful for you sharing your story um dr rose i've been I've been taking the liberty of just calling you Rose, but of course. You're a doctor. Rose is great. <laughs> and, you know,
1: thank you. Thank you for inviting me um, to share my story with you. And I've enjoyed it immensely.
0: Thank you. Come really. over.
1: Come over. <laughs>
0: I'd love to. I, I've been to California. I was there last year. And um, it's it's a really nice place to be. So uh, if, if I'm back in the kind of Southern California region, I'll, I'll definitely give you a shout. And we can uh, go surfing or something.
1: That sounds great. <laughs> And have a great rest of the weekend.
0: Thanks, Rose. You too. That was my interview with Rose. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have an unusual life story or know someone who does, please get in touch with me by email at patpodcastpeople at gmail.com. As I say, every episode, I can use all the help I can get finding the most interesting stories possible. Also, if you enjoy the podcast and consider it a worthwhile venture, you can support it on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash I'd really appreciate any contribution you see fit to give. You can find me on Twitter, it's at Pat's In two weeks' time, my guest will be Morris Robinson. Morris was an all-American college football player, but after he didn't make it to the professional game and working in corporate America for almost a decade, he eventually became one of the most sought-after bass opera singers in the world. Join me in two weeks' time to hear Morris's story. Thanks for listening or watching.